Sanborn here along with Lauren Beagle, our Generation Z correspondent. Lauren, how you been doing? I've been good. It's been a, it's been a minute, Dr. Bob, I know. since we've been in here. I know. Wow. Uh, we have a great show today, though. I hope we do. I think we do. <laughs> I think we do. Uh, welcome to Growing Up in America here on 90.1 FM KPFT. Uh, this is a discussion on our children, public policy. How do we as a city community do when it comes to taking care of all of our kids? Growing Up in America is a production of Children at Risk, the voice of Texas's children, a nonprofit organization dedicated to research, public policy, law, collaborative action on behalf of our youth. And every week we fill this same 60 minutes with lively discussion. And it's especially lively when Lauren Beagle joins the the group here. And so today we have a couple of interesting things, right? Our, our number for uh, the date of the day is 51. Any ideas? Mm-hmm. I, I don't even know what the topic is. Do you? No, I don't. And we don't normally have, you know, I feel like normally 51 it might be a percent, but then that's over half. Maybe. So yeah, that would be a half. big percent. I have number no idea. Of, number 51 would be, oh, you know what? I'm going to guess. Okay. We are 51 out of 51 when it comes to mental health access in the state of Texas. That's my I, guess. That's a good one. Yeah. So All right. I, I have no I'll, idea. I'll lock in with you on that one. And we have a good thumbs up, thumbs down today. We're going to be talking a little bit about... Uh, Manners. Manners. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm always up for that. Uh, And uh, so we're real excited. A number of good uh, topics today. Uh, Also, uh, last week there was that immigration town hall. Were you able to go to that, Lauren? I was not. I was sad to miss it. Um, It looked like a very, um, you know, I follow both, obviously, the children at Reside and then it was hosted at the Baker Institute, which does some really good, I mean, they get really in the weeds. Yeah, over at Rice University. Yeah. Yeah, Really nice Um, thing, yeah. So I'm I'm sad I didn't miss it. I'm sad I missed it, but it looked like a really cool discussion. Yeah, I think uh, people sort of learned a lot about immigration. This is interesting, right? And I'm sure you guys talked a little bit about this last week, but immigration seems to be one of those areas where we're not seeing a lot of movement. It's like people don't want to speak rationally about this particular mm-hmm. topic. So it's uh, we find this all the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just there's so many narratives that, you know, we, we just – kind of put our heads in the sand when it comes to the data sometimes and and it's so heated when really this is so many kids and right. trying to put them all in one bucket of this or that without just like having an actual discussion is so challenging so so uh let's go to our theme music for thumbs up thumbs down we have a little thumbs up thumbs down theme music Dr. Bob. Now, this could split quite a few different ways, but I think it, this could be a fun okay. generational split. Okay, good generational split. I'm up for it. When someone says, thank you, yeah. how do you respond? You're welcome. And there it is, folks. <laughs> the answer. Because the real thumbs up, thumbs down is, do you say you're, I mean, thumbs up, thumbs down, no problem. Let me tell you, my mom, yes. who is your age, you she's cannot, a youngster. You were, yeah, yeah, yeah. she's uh, sprightly, and thankfully she doesn't listen to the radio because I just told everyone that. She, there is no easier way to just piss her off than to say no problem if she says thank you. Like I remember, we would bag at the grocery store, and she would say thank you so much, and they'd go no problem, and she would like walk out in a huff at the grocery store oh, wow. because she felt it was like so the right thing to do. Yeah. To say you're welcome and not no problem. But I personally... You say no problem? I do sometimes. I mean, it really... I feel like it's something I am... Like, if I'm volunteering somewhere, you know, I volunteer with, like, some dog rescue. So, like, we're talking to a lot of people. We're chatting with them. We're selling stuff. Like, if they say thank you, I'll often say no problem because, like, I feel it's my job Mm -hmm. to do it. Whereas, you know, if I maybe have gone genuinely out of my way and someone says thank you, then I'll say you're welcome. But I feel like I use them pretty interchangeably. I think it's also uh, a geographic thing, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, I think uh, I've heard the no problem a lot. Like in Australia, you hear more Mm. uh, thank you, no problem. Uh, You hear parts of the the world, my pleasure, you know, thank Mm, you. Or the Chick-fil-A drive-thru. Did they say my pleasure? Oh, there that's as like well? their whole thing. <laughs> Is they're trained to say it's my, my pleasure. pleasure. They yeah. don't say you're welcome or no problem. But I remember going on a trip to South Africa, right, recently, mm-hmm. and and every time you say you're welcome, my pleasure, and it was just you know. So I think it's also uh, a regional sort of thing, geographic. Uh, but do you like to say no problem? And why is this the thumbs up, thumbs down for today? 
I can't tell you. <laughs> the the team thought it was something worth discussing. This is worth. So if you a- like my mom, have very strong feelings on whether we should say no problem or you're welcome. Do feel free to give us a call and let us know. You know what I want to talk about? Thumbs up, thumbs down today is yeah. I know last week you had a little bit of discussion on the four day school mm-hmm. week. And Are you going to propose a four day work week? Uh, if so, children at risk staff in the booth. Can we get a, can we get a thumbs up? <laughs> but here's the thing is that uh, I've been doing so many media interviews on this topic because mm-hmm. people and of course it appeared in the Houston Chronicle uh, yesterday. I think it was the headline. It was on, it was in today as well. And and I don't. I'm I'm sorry I wasn't available to listen to the show last week, but it was really interesting to me is that uh, in one fell swoop, you had the school board in Crosby say, we're going to go to a four-day school week, which in a sense, if you look at all the data, they basically just now said, we're okay with the failure of our children, right? We're okay with academic failure. Uh, We're not going to spend as much time on task. If anything, after the post-pandemic, you you would feel like uh, school districts want to get their kids back up to speed. But here's a school district, the largest in Texas to have done this so far, saying, uh, no, we're perfectly happy not getting our kids up to, up to speed and blaming it on a teacher shortage, of mm-hmm. which there's one, but every school district yeah. is dealing with the teacher shortage. None of them are going to a shorter uh, school week. And I think it's also, you know, so difficult because what are parents supposed to do? Especially if because you have elementary I, kids, right, right? I guarantee they're not, the parents are not getting a four day work week. Right. And I think even, you know, I've, I've seen just like, you know, on social media and stuff, people seem to think that, you know, flexibility working from home is the same as being able to care for your child. You know, like, oh, well, we're in a more flexible situation. It's like, have you tried to, yeah. to focus for like, 25 good minutes if you have a young child at home i mean i have young dogs at home and that in and of listen, itself is we, we have plenty of staff members at children at risk you, that you and i are friends with mm-hmm. we're friends with every staff member at children of course at risk. we are but, we're so charismatic but, but young moms and young dads it drives them they are so stressed out by yeah. having young kids and trying to work uh that most of them i mean you think of uh uh lewis on our staff with three kids he comes into the office every day, even yeah. though he doesn't have to because it's just a stressful situation. Yeah, so that's that's my concern. I mean, obviously, I, I think they are extending the school day, so in some way they are recouping, I think, some of the uh, lost they're time. They're trying to, but come right. on. The but kids the are going to be so day, tired at the end of the day. Yeah. They're, they're basically losing a full day. We should be extending the school day anyway. I yeah. mean, we should be having more time on task anyway. And and what's clear about this, this is not an opinion, is when we look at the data, uh, whenever you try to get low-income kids sort of back up to speed, sort of performing at higher academic levels, they mm-hmm. need to have significantly more time on task, especially when, when they go home, there's not much learning going on. Yeah. You know, it's different if there's learning going on at home. But in many of these households, parents are working. There's not much learning going on. And the TV t- being turned on is not learning. Yeah. No, agreed. And I mean, it's it's disappointing for sure that that this is the quote unquote solution. So the Beagle and Sanborn are agreeing. Yeah, look at that. Look at that. Thanks, Crosby ISD. <laughs> Very good. Uh, ready for our next segment? I am. I'm excited. All right, on the line with us is uh, Reka Lakshman. How are you doing, Reka? I'm doing well. Good afternoon. Very good. Reka's with the Immunization Partnership. Uh, And Reka, it's been a couple months since I've talked to you, but uh, one of the things that we've talked about in the past, right, is this idea around immunization and sort of what's happening in our schools uh, and what's happening in the state legislature that's trying to influence what's going on with our schools. Talk a little bit about this legislative session and uh, defense and what we've had to do in terms of defense in terms of helping our kids stay healthy. Geez, I don't know how long this this segment can be because we can (laughs) fill up volumes. And, you know, we're only 30% of the way there when it comes to to the Texas um, legislative session. I I mean, I, I think, you know, Yes, to sum it up, we are, you know, again in the thick of things and experiencing another um, contentious legislative session. Um, And this has unfortunately not been new, you know, over the the past few sessions, but I think it's really kind of hit hit a a peak, you know, coming, you know, we're on the other side of of the pandemic. But, you know, I, I think bottom line is we are now seeing the 
culmination of an all-out assault on policies that will harm children. And what I mean by that is, you know, we've seen legislation filed by lawmakers um, in, in both chambers, both in the House and the Senate, that would, you know, essentially roll back, um, weaken, or even in some cases remove, you know, childhood or school entry vaccine requirements that have been on the books for almost five decades now. Yeah, this, and, this is something you know, we're not just talking about COVID here, right? I mean, COVID vaccines are a whole different thing. We're now talking about measles and uh, some of the, polio, some of the things that all of us have taken for granted for many years and which decades have proven are healthy for our kids. No, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, COVID is, a, is another conversation. You know, we're looking and we're talking about those routine childhood wellness vaccines. And, I mean, you know, if you look at kind of, you know, recent news, um, Ohio, for example, just ended their measles um, out, outbreak declaration. So in Ohio, um, there was a measles outbreak, um, 85 um, cases of measles. Wow. Um, 80 of those 85 were in unvaccinated children. So, wow. you know, the vast majority of those kids weren't vaccinated at all. And, you know, we're all mobile again. You know, we're all flying. We're all traveling. Yep. You know, um, we're, we're trying to find our normal routine. And, you know, it's that adage of, you know, these diseases are literally a plane ride away. You know, and then you, you mentioned polio. Well, lo and behold, there was a case of polio in New York late last year. And so, you know, as we let our guard down, you know, as we have lawmakers, um, you know, adding to the fuel of misinformation and basing their policy decisions on erroneous, not factual information that can affect, you know, millions of children and millions of Texans, We've got, you know, we've got a, a, a big heavy list um, ahead of us to protect um, kind of existing laws and policies that protect children. What are the chances uh, during this session um, that the state legislature passes a bill which says parents get to decide if the kids get measles vaccines or not. And that means that we're going to, you know, I've seen an estimate from schools of public health that up to 30% of, of kids, if we, if we, if we did that, if we said parents get to decide about 30% of kids would not be vaccinated. And some of that is not because parents are anti-vax. Part of it is because parents just, you know, Oh, if I don't have to do it, I'm, you know, I'm really sort of busy right now. Um, uh, what are the chances that something like that would pass? Rekha? Um. If I had a crystal ball today to predict what the state legislature is going to do, um, geez, my, my pockets would be full. I mean, I would say, you know, you know, we're not discounting, we're not discounting anything. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's um, a, a different kind of momentum. You know, I think it's a lot of this also has to do with, you know, it, it's sort of the ramifications of the pandemic. Um, you know, we've said, you know, for a while that, you know, COVID um, kind of served um, and continues to serve as a gateway to get to all other, you know, immunizations. Yeah. And, you know, we're seeing that continue to play out. My hope is, um, you know, with advocates in the Capitol, um, such as, you know, the amazing staff at Children at Risk, um, you know, the, the Immunization Partnership and all our other partners going in there, arming lawmakers with the factual evidence and information that good sense will um, will ultimately prevail. But, you know, my my frustration is the fact that, you know, we're now, I think, up to north of 35 vaccine-related bills. The vast majority of them, you know, are vaccine-limiting or anti-vaccine. Um, and the fact that, you know, these bills are even filed, you know, gives, you know, um, a little bit of, you know, false credence yeah. Um, and a platform to people who spread misinformation. And so, you know, our goal um, will be to, you know, to prevent these bills from, from getting heard um, because we know that hearings, uh, you know, are, are is an opportunity to spread misinformation. But, um, you know, I'm going to say never say never. You know, we're, you know, we've prepared ourselves, um, you know, to, to fight until the end. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, a, you know, Part of the Children at Risk team who's just going through, you know, all the bills filed and pulling these out. I mean, the 
I hate to say creativity because that's almost like a positive word, but I mean, there's a certain level of creativity in all of the different, you know, avenues that this could take, you know, maybe it doesn't pass in the school restrictions. So they have, you know, the backup ideas. I'd love to hear, you know, I, I feel, I believe in my heart that like vaccines are a silent majority issue that the Mm. majority of people and of parents are sitting at home, very glad that they don't have to worry about their child getting polio at the birthday party or, you know, measles at Disney world. What, you know, have you guys been engaging with, you know, with parents, with community members, what can people be doing or where can they find, you know, good information on like how to tell your lawmaker that you are not part of the group that is trying to get rid of the measles vaccine requirement? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a great question and, and a comment. And, you know, I, I think number one is, you know, we are the silent majority. Um, and we've got to find a way to motivate and to activate, you know, parents and individuals, you know, who see and appreciate the value and, and the benefits of, of immunization. And it's all about taking taking action. And I think, you know, we're at the point where, or I should say, up until this point, it's kind of like, eh, why do I really need, why why do I really need to speak up on this issue? Mm -hmm. You know, it's similar to like, why do I need to go advocate for clean drinking water? Mm -hmm. Well, the folks in Flint, or now the folks in Ohio, um, you know, there's a, there's, there's a reason. And, you know, as I said, there, there, it's not meant to be hyperbolic. I mean, we're just, we're seeing it play out where, there's truly a full-on assault um, on these, you know, this kind of backbone of, of public health policies. The simplest way to protect your child, you know, is to just, you know, get them vaccinated. We know sending children to school is scary these days. You know, parents are really scared for a whole host of issues, um, yeah. and one of the one of which should not be their child's health when you've got a very easy, cost-effective tool um, to do that. But, you know, I, I think from a lawmaker standpoint, I think the vast majority of Texas lawmakers, they get it. They know that there's mm-hmm. a benefit, you know, and there's value to, to immunizations, but it has really become politicized. Yeah, I think, and, I think you know, that... I think, Rekha, one of the big worries, right, is that this gets to the point where it comes to a big vote. And uh, it's going to be hard for people that even if they understand the science, just because of the political climate we're in, are, you know, and because of this whole idea of parental rights and so forth, that they'll be sort of forced to vote for this if it ever reaches the floor. I think that that becomes sort of a big worry for us. Rekha Lakshaman is uh, with the Immunization Partnership. And uh, Rekha, I would love for you to come back in a couple weeks or in a month and let us know how things are going and let us know how we can continue to help uh, in this uh, very important fight for our kids, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Appreciate the opportunity. And I love the jazzy music. So I'd love to love to be invited back with the jazzy music and the, and the great audience. There you go. And we're going to put a little note for Reka, jazzy music. Very good. <laughs> Thank you, Reka, very much. Thanks so much. We did have someone call in on our thumbs up, thumbs down to say, they say they picked your third option. They said it's my pleasure. Oh, very good. Addicted to betrayal, but you're relevant. You're terrified to look down. We are so excited. Um, A few weeks ago, Children at Risk hosted our first virtual learning summit, which was the State Mm. of Black Children. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were a couple of panels that I just thought were so good that we actually talked about having some of those guests come back and talk on the radio show. And next we have one of them. Dr. Anjanette Wyatt is the president of the American Pharmacists Association Foundation and also the president and CEO of Clinical Care Pharmacy. Dr. Wyatt, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? We're good. Thanks so much. Both for- of you. How are both of you? We're <laughs> terrific. We're I'm, so good. Yes, we're good. Good, good. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Well, so, yes, that was a great segment, by the way, uh, on children at risk for black children in Texas. I really enjoyed that. It was great. And, I mean, I feel like y'all's, the summit you were on was about, you know, finding a way to good health for, you know, black children and families in Texas. And I would love to hear you know, kind of what motivated, what, what excited you about being part of that discussion? And maybe like, if you could recap for people who weren't on the event, like really what those major themes were, what you guys were talking about, I think that'd be awesome. 
Well, um, first of all, it was very exciting to me. We talked about a plethora of things, uh, uh, including maternal mortality, which is high in the African-American community right now. We're, we're looking at 44% maternal mortality per 100,000 births in America, which is really a substantial amount compared to other um, races at 12.6 for Hispanics and 17 points nine for other races. So um, that we spoke of, not only do the children um, have socioeconomic um, factors that impact their health and they have health disparities, but one of the things I've been pointing out lately is that the health disparities start in the in the womb for a lot of African-American children uh, with no prenatal care. And so it's a huge topic that we, we have a lot of work to do on. So we're, we're trying to target health disparities right now, especially in African-American ch- children, access to health care, access to immunization, access to all the things that they need to live a fruitful and productive uh, life and just have longevity in their lifespan. Dr. Wyatt, when, when we talk about maternal morbidity, maternal mortality, obviously Texas has one of the, the, the highest rates of maternal mortality in the nation. And when we look at other states uh, that are doing a better job, what, what is difference? What's, what's the difference in the public policy, say, in a state that's doing a great job in this area as opposed to Texas? I mean, what are the things what are they doing differently? Well, access to health care is one thing. Yeah. There are a lot of un- uninsured um, communities here, especially communities of color with health disparities. So yeah. that's the difference. If you look at California, the, 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 the rate of uninsured mothers and children is very low because they have a system in place right. that takes care of the Californians. Texas does not have a system in place that will take care of Texans that can't afford health care and that can't afford um, the Affordable Health Care Act, because even if you get on that, you still have to be able to afford it. So we need a better plan here in Texas um, to take care of our most vulnerable population. So it's very important that we restructure our health care and our our, health care access. And that's what's affecting um, minority children here in Texas, not having that access. Yeah, I mean, I think that's so important. I mean, we were just talking about you know, we've talked about the school day, we're talking about, you know, healthcare in schools, and I think we often get caught up later in life, but a children at risk, and in general, I mean, we talk a lot about even just birth to five, and then as you're saying, before that, like, how can we expect children to be, you know, performing the same as their peers when even, you know, from birth, they've literally been, you know, put behind when you're experiencing all of those, like, how your brain's going to develop, how you're going to, like, develop into a person is being decided in that time. I'd love to hear you mentioned, you know, this work you're doing to expand access. And I think you guys even talked about on the panel, how part of expanding access is also expanding like information. And I think something that came up is this idea of not just like the facts, but also confidence in oneself to kind of, to be your own advocate in, in the medical setting. Um, I'd love to hear a little more about, about what that has looked like in your work. Hmm. In my work, I've been going around. I've sp- spoken all over the, you know, United States, trying to get people to understand advocacy is the key. Um, not only having an advocate on a on a, you know, social level, but also having an advocate to go to the doctor with you. A lot of mothers don't understand that some the the medical lingo is not, you know, it's it's not for the layperson. It's just people that understand it. A lot of times, the doctors are speaking over the head of the mother about their child, or or of the mother that is um, pregnant, you know, and having the baby. So having a, an advocate there for you um, is very important to help bounce, you know, help with the questions, help bounce things off of the doctor, and thoroughly have the patient understand what they need to do for better health. Uh, with diabetes, with a lot of the, the um, disease states that negatively affect communities of color, a lot of times the language is used and there's not health uh, literacy there. So if you're, if you're talking to a patient and they don't read or write or they don't understand the language, they're not comprehending what they need to do for better health or to improve their health. So it goes even back to health literacy, health equity, 
and then you know maybe we can can understand why people aren't doing better with their health, uh, especially children, because a parent has to understand what to do for the child. You know, it's, it's really interesting, Dr. White. I was in a conversation recently where someone, uh, I was talking about sort of access to health care and what a poor state we are here in Texas in regards to health care. And someone, uh, and you would expect this, someone says, well, listen, we have the best health care in the world uh, in the United States. Just name a place where there's better health care. And I think a lot of people in the room were stunned because, you could pretty much go to almost any other developed country and you'd find lower rates of uh, maternal mortality. Uh, you'd have yes. higher rates of access to health. Uh, you know, overall, base, you know, maybe at the top end, right? If you have some sort of rare yeah. form of cancer, you're going to get great care. But for the, for the average person and the vast majority of Americans, health care is not better here than anywhere else. And, and we're yeah. seeing this pretty clearly in this data. Absolutely. We're seeing it very clear. And I think on the the political level, we need more advocacy from those um, in the position to make a difference, introducing bills um, that can go through the Texas legislature to change our our um, thought process when it comes to health care in Texas, because we are behind the eight ball. We are yeah. definitely failing our Texans. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Dr. Angela Wyatt, uh, who is what uh, us at our big uh, state of black children. We were yeah. excited about that. And she is the CEO of clinical care pharmacy and uh, Dr. Wyatt, thank you so much for the work that you do. And I hope we can get you back on the program on growing up in America sometime soon. Thanks, Dr. Wyatt. Thank you. Have thank you for day. having me. I appreciate it. Have Absolutely. a good one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to growing up in America on KPFT. All right, Layla Mazzali is with us. Layla is the director of the Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation at Children at Risk, and she is all things data all the time. Layla, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Very good. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking here, 51, and at the top of the show, we had no idea what 51 meant. But but you know what I love to talk about, 51, right? 51st out of 51 places, Texas, in terms of mental health access. Is that perchance what we're talking about today? I would like to interrupt. Mm-hmm. If it is what you plan to talk about, can you change it? So Dr. Bob isn't so smug from guessing correctly <laughs> earlier. In the show. You should see him grinning here, waiting for you to tell him he's right. And for our listeners, we want to be clear that Dr. Bob actually has no idea what we're going to talk about. Right. And so that was just a lucky guess. <laughs> so she's, she's just piling we, it on, isn't Texas. she? is rated 51, so ranked 51st out of 51, um, and youth who had a major depressive episode who did not access mental health services, adults with a disability who could not see a doctor due to cost, and adults with a mental illness who are uninsured. So not faring all that great. It's sort of amazing, isn't it? I mean, in this day and age, when we're, we're we're seemingly more enlightened about mental health, we see the trauma of school shootings. We see the trauma of the pandemic. Uh, our kids are in bad shape. We see it every, each and every day. Even after a school shooting, we hear the state leaders say, well, we obviously need to pour more resources into mental health. Yet here in the state of Texas, 50 50-
trying to get back to a place that was still not great before we absolutely slashed mental health funding in Texas like 10, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that we're starting where everyone else is starting and we're not putting money. It's that like we are starting behind and then we are not putting up the money to make up that difference to where we were. And then from there to build on that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, we talk about this with so many things. Like if Texas wants to be a leader in business, wants to be a place people come to and live, I, you have to, you have to support Let's take care children. of our kids. Right. Let's take care of our kids. Because people who want to work here probably have children or they might, or they might want to, you know, I mean, this is also adults with mental illness who are uninsured, who, you know, people having depressive episodes with a disability who couldn't afford to see a doctor. Like the, the people who would come to work here are not fully independent from the people who would be in these camps needing these services that we don't provide access to. So it's just hard to, to yeah. wave the Texas flag about this, that, and the other thing when we can't do something as basic as just like provide full comprehensive health care for kids. And, and here's the thing, Lauren, is that I, I remember right after Ovalde and the governor being there in town and there were a big press conference and he said, you know, we're going to do more on mental health. Uh, because that's always the answer to a school shooting, right? right? Because that's what we talk about in Texas. <laughs> and and someone said, so does that mean, Governor Abbott, that you might consider Medicaid expansion? Because that would bring a lot mm-hmm. of federal money into mental health. And he specifically said, no, we're not going to do that. We'll find the money somewhere else. But we're yet to find the money. Yeah. There's no we money. Yet to we haven't it. done. We haven't accepted this free federal money mm-hmm. for Medicaid expansion. And so, uh, the real theme of this episode is where Texas is turning down free money. What's the deal? I what's mean, the throughout deal? health. When's the last time you turned down free money, Lauren? I don't, Doctor yeah. Bob. I I never. My personal philosophy: I will never argue with you. If you offer to pick up the check, I'm always going to say thank you. Why? Because we don't turn down free money. Yet I still pay you, and you still argue with me. Yeah, because that doesn't get rid of my money. And that money is far from free. Look at me. That's true. Here that I is am. right. It's not free money. So anyway, we're sorry we missed Layla on that one, but uh, we're happy to have her call in. Thanks, Layla, if you can hear us wherever you ended up. All right, let's take a journey into the classroom, Lauren Beagle. Oh, boy. And uh, remember back in the day when you were in school and you were writing, and so we're going to talk a little bit about one of the great performing schools, Albright Middle School, uh, which is a great school. And uh, with us today, Erica Milson, who's with uh, Children at Risk with our Texas A-plus division, uh, where they go out there into the schools. And Maria Morales, who's a specialist at Albright Middle School. And uh, Erica and Maria, thanks so much for being on the program today. Thank you. How are you guys doing? Very good, very good. And and Erica, remind me of this. Where is is Albright and Aldine? Is that right? It's A Leaf. A, A Leaf. You know, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I get the two mixed. A Leaf, right? I mean, yeah. who can't uh, you know represent for A Leaf? I mean, what True. a great area that is. So, uh, right. what is it that? Uh, and I love for Maria to talk a little bit about this. What is it that A-Leaf, that, that Albright Middle School is doing differently around riding in the schools that's make it making it into this overachieving school that it is? Yes, well, thank you for having me on this afternoon. Sure. Um, I really think one of the biggest things that I know kind of is a standout for my campus is that we have a variety of texts on our campus. Mm. We are not afraid to buy books. <laughs> Um, have all sorts of genres, types of text, magazines. I mean, we really try to be text-rich on our campus because I really think that good, strong, avid readers make good writers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and and in this climate, and I don't want to get super political here, Maria, but in this climate can't help where people are like banning books and stuff, it's almost like people are anti-literate, but... It, isn't it refreshing, yeah. though, to have a campus where you have all these books and newspapers and pl- things to read? I remember reading a, a piece of research, and this is a number of years ago, that any home where you have a lot of books and magazines lying around, these are homes where kids are, are achieving at higher academic levels because the reading is very accessible. And in a sense, that's what you're reproducing at Albright. Yes, and, you know, especially for this middle school age, a lot of kids really start disengaging from just independent reading, kind of reading for fun. Mm. 
So we really do a great job of incorporating book clubs and offering as much choice as the teachers are comfortable with, you know, for every round of book club. So, you know, that way we can kind of bring that joy back to reading for our teens and just, you know, make sure we have like a variety that any kid can connect to and find, you know, a theme or a character that they really want to get, you know, to know more to be able to at the end kind of respond to, you know, the text in yeah. writing and in conversation. Erica, from your perspective, where you see a lot of other schools, right, you're helping schools sort of turn turn themselves around in these areas. Uh, it, it's more than that at Albright, though. I mean, it's it's more than just having books around, right? I mean, there, there are obviously some highly capable people doing some extraordinary things out there. Yes, yes. So one um, kudos that I give Maria and her team is the shift from, I know when I was in school, there was such a huge focus on writing a five-paragraph essay. Um, so it was more about how much you could write. And they're really focusing on the quality. So just getting kids to respond to, uh, like Maria said, a theme or a character, whether it be short, like something brief, they're just focusing on kids being able to understand you have something to say about it, so write it down. And it mimics a lot of what they're going to see on the the state assessment and it just makes it a little bit more accessible for all students like it's not so much focused on the length like are you writing two pages but you just have some good thoughts and we want you to get it down and we're going to show you how to develop and craft it in a way that everyone can understand what you're saying yeah i think I think that makes a lot of sense and it would be successful, especially I think in a world where the way that we are all communicating with each other is changing a whole lot. Like I can't say that I've had to use the five paragraph essay format in a minute, but I have had to use the idea of laying out clearly what I want to say of tying back to that consistently of those less, you know, regimented, you know, really, yeah, to your point, that focus on like, can people understand what you're saying? Are you communicating effectively in whatever medium? Um, And kind of to that end, I'd love to hear a little bit from either both of you about, you know, as students, I'm sure are, you know, more and more online participating and I guess communicating in a way in that medium um you know how are y'all I guess engaging with the fact that so much of their lives is happening online and I think you know looking back when I was in middle school that's where I spent a lot of my time when I stopped reading for fun um was on my phone um so I guess you know you're talking about really meeting them where they're at how does that play in with you know technology and social media and all of that yeah, so like one big change this year is we are more of a one-to-one campus and district. So it's really kind of making that, um, but having the balance of there's times where it's an online assignment and there's time where it's still a paper pencil, you know, um, task. But really, my teachers have been doing a really good job of really helping students bridge like that daily informal writing, like, you know, text messages, emails and kind of how to take those messages and almost like transforming them now to a more formal register as needed. Plus, when there are times where if they have a writing task, then my teachers do a good job of kind of bringing in a little bit of that kind of social media mock where it's like, okay, well, we wrote this, you know, um, book review. Now let's take it off the page and tweet an author or let's go ahead and submit this book review and, you know, kind of get to the bones shorten it up and let's maybe um, submit it to Goodreads. So just having that balance of being able to know where it's kind of like school writing and then being able to take it off the page and into the real world. Uh, Maria, I, I want, one final question that I wanted to ask you before before we have to go is, um, you know, I teach at the college level and I notice a lot of kids that are quite bright but aren't necessarily good writers. Uh, I'm, I wonder, are you able to catch kids early and is it in middle school where you could sort of transform them into good writers or is it much more than that and uh, does it have to start earlier? Can it change later? Talk a little bit about, you know, what, what are the times and what's the effort that needs to go into making a, a young person a good writer? Yeah, well, I know, like, for example, in my district and on my campus is we have a high population of emergent bilingual students. Yeah. So, I mean, we have students coming in at any age, at any grade um, from, you know, 
from different countries. And so truly, we really meet students where they are. So, you know, we try to offer sentence stems or um, just kind of like fill in the blank, kind of like those old kind of closed passages, you know, where here's the skeleton, fill in the analysis. Um, And honestly, we're really big on my campus, too, on having that student-to-student interaction and having students talk and collaborate, because that also grow their writing banks before they even get being tasked. Wow. Very good. Erica Milson and uh, we have uh, uh, Maria Maria Morales. So I was uh, couldn't see that name, but Maria Morales, Erica Milson, uh, and and I also want to say A Leaf ISD, right? And A Leaf, the part of town, A Leaf, famous for the that Netflix show Mo. I don't know if you've seen it, Lauren. I've only heard you talk oh, about I it. I have. Yeah, you've seen it, Erica. Maria, have you seen the show? No. Oh yeah, you need to see it. I mean, what's great about Mo is that it's this whole idea of how A Leaf is this big, huge, you know. melting pot of so many different people from all over the world, right? And so that's one of the wonderful things about it. All right, guys. Hey, thank you for the great work that you both do inside the classroom helping our kids. Erica Milson, Maria Morales, thank you guys very much for being on Growing Up in America. That was a good segment. That was good. I love talking to teachers. Yeah. Because they're heroes. They're like doing the real work, right? They are. And I mean, they're so We're just passing laws and talking on the radio. That's all we do. And yet these are the people that are doing the real work. Someone should put us to work. (laughs) Speaking of people who are certainly doing the work, um, we now have Rebecca Fowler, who is the Director of Public Policy and Government Affairs for Mental Health America of Greater Houston. If y'all remember, we were just talking about the Mental Health America rankings for Texas yep. in our data segment. That's right. So, Rebecca, and a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, Dr. Freeney on as we well did. for Mental Health America. Rebecca, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Well, we, um, Rebecca, we're just talking to um, the CEO of Clinical Care Pharmacy, Dr. Wyatt, about access to care um, and, you know, the need especially for black families and more generally, you know, minority families and communities to have better access to, to health care. And I think sometimes, you know, mental health care and coverage gets left out of that conversation. So I'd love to hear, you know, just really what are you guys working on this session specifically or more generally at Mental Health America of Greater Houston? Yeah, for sure. I think what I want to start off with saying is that kind of to your point that was made earlier around, you know, COVID, around mm. Baldi, around kind of stress of, of kids, um, we are also seeing that in families um, and even um, just women, you know, who are child-free are experiencing stress and anxiety and depression at rates really unseen, um, even after COVID, you know, quote-unquote over and we're, we're back to business as usual. Uh, we just see that the mental health of women in Texas specifically um, is, is incredibly strained. And so we are focusing on really where are the avenues that we can support women um, and where we can perhaps create, you know, more communal supports in addition to like healthcare access. Rebecca, when you think about mental health uh, in the state of Texas and when it comes to uh, moms and for kids, uh, and obviously we're we're far behind, but is but I do feel like awareness of the need for mental health funding, awareness of the need for uh, mental health professionals. I mean, we have come a long way there. We're just seem seemingly falling behind in regards to funding. Yes, I mean funding in particular, especially with we're looking at schools. I think mm-hmm. is a, a place where we're we're falling behind. I think also as you were kind of alluding to the need for the behavioral health professionals and looking beyond, let's just say psychiatrists and nursing and really looking at what is the full workforce that we can really use at our um, kind of statewide reaction to COVID and statewide reaction to this mental health crisis. It's not just doctors. It is also social workers. It is also peer support. Um, and how can we fund those and how can we put 
communities and communities that need care the most. Talk a little bit about, uh, Rebecca, about this, uh, the 12-month maternal health coverage that Medicaid uh, has and, and how some of it's going to be expiring uh, at the end of this coming month, this month. For sure, yeah. So it, it's kind of two different points. So because we were in a public health emergency um, in response to COVID, um, there was something called continuous coverage for Medicaid, where people, no matter their eligibility, were able to stay on and actually have health care. Um, but now on the 31st of this month, so 31st of March, uh, new federal laws mean that the continuous Medicaid coverage is over. So people are going to have to figure out if they are still eligible, um, and the state is going to have to go through a very long process of re-enrolling people. So that's one big issue that we really want to make sure that people understand that they need to check. And part of that has to do with Texas's not having expanded Medicaid, correct? Like that, is that what is kind of creating that, that population that would no longer qualify? Um, in part, it is. I think it's also, you know, yes, if we did have expansion, we would have a larger population that is eligible. But I think it is also people's, you know, income changes, their, you know, where they live changes. So I think it's it's part of a general larger population of folks would have coverage if we did extend or expand Medicaid. But it is also life change. And so we need to look at who is who is available. Um, but I think to the bigger point, I think unfortunately the kind of getting back to normal does mean reduced access to healthcare. Yeah. Um, and to me, that is the, the biggest point. And I think the other piece to that is the, the maternal health that unfortunately um, efforts made last session to really ensure that new moms had a year of coverage um, didn't even pass the house. And then right. once it made out the Senate, it was six months. And then because of language in the bill um, on a national level, uh, it was just not deemed um, it was not deemed that it was possible to even kind of approve by the, the federal government. Right. And so now we're back to the drawing board of, of, of two months of coverage for moms. So and Rebecca, us, I remember when this was like a big victory, right, during the last legislative session that we went from two months to six months. I remember going, speaking around the state. This was one of our big victories. What are the chances now that the federal government has said, no, you can't do six months, it's two months or 12. What are the chances that our state legislature says, oh, I agree with the federal government and we're going to go to 12 months? And and, and I put it in those that perspective because because many times our state legislature isn't thinking what's best for our folks. They're thinking, you know, how can I sort of twist, put a twist in the side of the federal government? Is there a chance, though, that they may be thinking we're going to go with 12 months this time? I mean, I, you know, as, as everyone likes to say, anyone that says that they know what's going to happen is lying um, when it comes to the Texas legislature. But I think that promising, you know, factors that we're seeing that Governor Abbott did mention 12 months coverage in his budget proposal. Uh, Speaker Phelan also has um, HB 12 as one of his priority bills. So I think we we see it on on two thirds of the, the, as I call them, the big three. So that the Senate is really going to be the the factor and the question that we're not sure about. But um, there is growing, I think, pressure from both a financial um, state, you know, the state does get more money um, if we bring or money from uh, the federal government if we bring more women into 12-month care and there are increased or decreased covered or health care costs. But um, we also just know that women need these health coverage uh, up to one year. We know that um, yeah. one in four uh, maternal deaths occur 43 days after pregnancy or after delivery and up to a year so wow uh, you know, you and I both hope that, uh, you know, in a couple months from now, we're talking about 12 months, right? I think uh, yeah. that's the way we have to go. Rebecca Fowler is with Mental Health America. Rebecca, thank you so very much for the work that you and your team are doing. And thanks for being on the Growing Up in America program. Great. Thank you. Right. Have a good one.
All right. We love to go around Texas, right? We do love to go around Texas, much so, like our next guest, so, Nakinya Wilson. Yeah, where's Nakinya from? Well, Nakinya works all across the state, much oh, like children at risk. Where do you live, Nakinya? Um, I live in Hutto, Texas. Hutto. I say that. Austin. Yeah. <laughs> More people know Austin. So uh, Nakinya Wilson is the co-founder, yeah. consultant and coach of X-Real Solutions. And uh, from the Austin area, and we're going to talk a little bit about family support services. N- Nakinya, tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing in regards to family support services. Sure. So I'll just preface by saying that I do lots of work in lots of spaces. Yeah. But specifically in regards to Restore Family Support Services, I um, work to support families that are struggling with uh, communication and healthy uh, relationships. So whether that looks like family mediation, supervised visitation, um, guardian ad litem services, ways to um, help really center children in the family system um, and to mitigate those families being a part of the CPS system or the court system. So, uh, Nikenia, tell us a little bit about if we had more of that going on in the state of Texas, what would the difference, what difference would it make for families in our state? You know, I think that, um, it will make a big difference for families. Uh, a lot of times we are not raised and taught how to communicate, how to fight fair. You know, we come from different backgrounds and yeah. families of origin, and we're not, you know, we're not prepared for um, healthy family dynamics. And I think if we were to shift more away from a punitive way of addressing some of, you know, our areas for growth, and we're more supportive and put money behind that, that it actually would save the state money and it would allow more families to stay together. Yeah, and Nakinya, I think from my understanding of what you do, it's not even just, you know, individually with families, but this work also translates to, you know, working with schools and kind of addressing, you know, a lot of the discipline practices of schools through this similar model. Could you talk about, you know, what that looks like when you're addressing schools sure. and, and that environment? Absolutely. So I'm um, also am a restorative justice practitioner mm. and um, I've been doing that work since 2012 um, where we were able to actually go across the state as a part of the Restorative Justice Institute at the University of Texas and train educators um, at all the service centers across the state on how to use more restorative practices that were culturally congruent to address the school-to-prison pipeline and the disproportionality that we see um, of black and brown kids in particular um, being over-criminalized and uh, receiving punitive discipline within the school setting. Um, And, you know, the base of that is relationship building, finding the ways that we um, are more alike than we are different, but also when there's harm, having a roadmap of how to address that harm in a way that is restorative. You know, there's so much that can be done in this state, Nakinya, as you mentioned, that if we spent the money now, we'd have so much less money to spend, right? I mean, it's it's uh, making investments like what's happening at Restore and, and, and many of the other things that we've talked about today, mental health and so forth. It's really about us having the political courage to make these investments now instead of waiting, instead of waiting to try to solve the problem once they're much bigger, right? I think that's that's sort of a key thing. I absolutely think that that is the case. You know, one of the other spaces that I work in, I was listening to your previous guest. Um, I'm actually working with some advocacy organizations for the extension in Medicaid. I'm meeting with some um, legislators next week. And, yes, my, my grandmother used to say an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And if I were to translate that, basically it's if we put in exactly what you said, we put yeah. in the work on the front end, then we would have, um, better outcomes and not have to do so much work on the back end. And that is across, you know, different types of social and health um, areas. Yeah, very good. All right, Nikenia, now we're reaching the apex of the show. This is where we ask you the really hard-hitting questions. These We probably have time for one or two, maybe three good questions. What did you want to be when you were growing up, Nikenia? Um, 
president of the United States. There you go. There's still <laughs> chance, right? You may be too young, though, Nikina, right? I mean, you're not in your 80s, so I'm just... Uh, so. Oh, <laughs> oh my yeah, goodness, Dr. Yeah. Bob. We can't take him anywhere. What was your favorite <laughs> book to be read when you were a child or to read? Ooh, favorite book to be read. Flowers in the Attic. Mm. Nice. Very yeah. good. And growing up, what was your favorite TV show, Nikina? That's a hard one. Favorite TV show. Uh, depends on what era in time. But I guess I'll go with Punky Brewster. Oh, Punky Brewster. <laughs> you know what? When we were kids, there's no accounting for taste when we're kids, right? I think that's the that's the key thing. <laughs> and so the final question today on the Growing Up in America program, when they make the, the Nikenia Wilson story in Hollywood, who do you want to play you, Nikenia? Oh, my goodness. I think that's a hard one. I'm not really a big celebrity person. Um, let's go with um, maybe Zendaya. Zendaya, yeah, wow, she'll be, yes. She'll wow. be old enough at that point. <laughs> <laughs> well, and she can play anybody. Forward thinking. Very good. Nikita Wilson, she's uh, uh, out in Hutto, out in uh, Austin, and she is with uh, – uh, X Real Solutions. Thank you very much, Nikini, for all you do, and thanks for being on the Growing Up in America program. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Very good. And Lauren, thanks for being a part of the show. You and I will both be in Cuba next week. We will. But we're going to have a great group here. We'll see you guys next week. We do this each and every week for, for children. children. Or should we do the radio in Cuba? Am I This is KPFT Houston, 90.1 FM and FM HD1. When you're high, you feel different. You think different, you talk different, you draw different, you listen to music different, but you probably knew that. Problem is, you also drive different, and not in a good way. That's why driving high is illegal everywhere. So if you're high, just don't drive. Make a plan to get a sober ride. Because if you feel different, you drive different. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Not completing high school is more of a social thing than it was an academic thing. Even though all these years have passed, I still had that longing to have my diploma. At age 30, Carissa finished her high school diploma. If you're even considering getting your high school diploma, you can do it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick and proud aunt. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing. But not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. One in six. That little girl sitting alone at the playground, she can't play like the other kids. She doesn't have the energy because she's hungry. School lunch will be her only meal today. It breaks my heart that this is the reality in our country, but it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste. This food is then provided to families and children in need. Being a kid should be about using your imagination, learning, and having